You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. Today is August 15th, 2021, and this is episode 132 of Lighthearted. We'll be talking shortly with Megan Agresto, site manager for Currituck Beach Lighthouse in North Carolina. You know, as I've admitted on the podcast before, I'm very sorry to say I have yet to visit the Outer Banks. I'm really hoping to make that happen in the next year or two. How about you? Have you been uh, to the Outer Banks, Cindy? Yes, I actually have. I visited Currituck Beach Lighthouse and Body Island Lighthouse when I was down there, uh, but I didn't get to go inside. They weren't, they, I, I went during a time when they weren't open. Um, Uh. but I did get to tour and climb Cape Hatteras lighthouse. And I went over and stood on its former, the former site before it was moved. Wow! So that was, that was really cool. I also had a pretty successful, uh, gift shop visit. (laughs) Uh By that, I, I, would guess you brought something home from I did, Cape did a little damage in the gift shop, but in, not not in a bad way. Yes. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. You, so you you've been to the top of America's tallest lighthouse. That's right. It, yeah. But I really I would also like to go back just so that I could see the inside of um, of all of the Outer Banks lighthouses, or the, at least right yeah. in that area, if possible. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great group of uh, extremely tall brick lighthouses. It's really. Uh, Pretty, pretty special area from what I've heard about one of the kind of one of the meccas for uh, lighthouse buffs so I I don't know why I'm admitting it to everybody listening because I'm yes, kind of ashamed that I haven't there. been to the Outer Banks <laughs> yeah well I, I will I promise so uh, Cindy what has happened on this date in lighthouse history well on August 15 1871 halfway rock lighthouse in Maine's Casco Bay was lighted for the first time It's a 76-foot-tall granite tower, and it originally had a third-order Fresnel lens. It's very isolated, about nine miles from Portland Harbor. One keeper, George Toothacre, was interviewed years after he left Halfway Rock, and he said, quote, Asleep or awake, the beacon haunts you. Often I would start, quick, sharp, out of profound sleep, a great, dark, haunting shudder on me. The light has gone out. Even now it is my fear, and so nervous am I of a night that all sounds startle me, even though it is years since I left the rock, end quote. Yeah, I, I've been on Halfway Rock a couple of times. It's a pretty amazing place. <laughs> Very isolated, but pretty amazing. I, I love those offshore wave-swept granite lighthouses. And as you know, Cindy, Halfway Rock Light is now owned by our friend Ford Reiki, who's been on this podcast. He's done an amazing restoration there. Right, yes. Also, on August 15, 1925, the Canadian jazz pianist and composer Oscar Peterson was born in Montreal. He once said, quote, if you have something to say of any worth, then people will listen to you, end quote. Hmm. Cindy, please help me tell everyone about Currituck Beach Lighthouse and today's guest. Sure, Jeremy. The Outer Banks, a 200-mile-long chain of barrier islands, stretch from southeastern Virginia to most of the North Carolina coast. The islands were a haven for piracy in the 1600s, but later an important commercial fishing industry developed in the region. Currituck Beach Lighthouse, the northernmost of six light stations on the Outer Banks, began service on December 1, 1875, 
to fill a 40-mile gap on the coast between the lights at Cape Henry, Virginia, and Body Island, North Carolina. It was the last major brick lighthouse built on the Outer Banks. While the other iconic lighthouse towers of the Outer Banks are painted with distinctive black and white daymark patterns, the 162-foot tall tower at Currituck Beach has remained unpainted. Three keepers and their families occupied a duplex, stick-style Victorian dwelling on the light station. A second keeper's house was later added to the station, relocated from the light station at Long Point, about nine miles to the northwest in Currituck Sound. Until 1933, when it was electrified, the station had a principal keeper and two assistants serving at a time. The keepers and their families raised livestock, kept a garden, and maintained the navigational equipment, buildings, and grounds. After automation in 1937, the site fell into disrepair until the nonprofit Outer Banks Conservationists renovated the station's buildings and opened the site to the public in 1990. In 2003, the U.S. Department of the Interior awarded the organization ownership of the lighthouse. Megan Agresto has been the resident site manager of the Currituck Beach Light Station for more than 16 years. Because the nearest schools are far away on the mainland, she started a school for local children, and she continues to serve as board president of the Kerala Education Foundation. I had the pleasure of speaking with Megan a couple of weeks ago. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking this afternoon with Megan Agresto, the uh, site manager for the Currituck Beach Lighthouse in North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining me today, Megan. Thanks for having me. Before we get into discussing the lighthouse, I just want to ask you a little bit about your background. First of all, how did you come to be the site manager for Currituck Beach Lighthouse? I had heard that the job had come open and I said to myself, I've got to have that job. I think lots of people who visit lighthouses will agree with me that they're the same they have the same instinct when they hear there's a job open at a lighthouse. But I wrote a letter to the board of directors along with Luis Garcia, who's now our lighthouse keeper and the father at that time of one child of ours. And we said, Look, together we're the pair you need. Megan has a background in not only classical studies, but, you know, within a history mindset and a graduate degree in nonprofit management through a school of social work, but Luis can pretty much fix or paint anything. Won't you give us a chance? And we heard they had maybe already interviewed people they were happy with. And I said, well, couldn't we just come in for an interview anyway? And so that's how it worked out. That It was a successful interview. Well, yeah, things certainly worked out for everybody. Were you, it sounds like you were a lighthouse buff before you got that job. Is that the case? That is not the case at all. I was, and maybe continue to be, a hoarder of information. So I had taken Latin in elementary school and Spanish in high school and lived abroad for three of my college years and ended up studying ancient Greek and learning modern Greek and learning Italian. and. So it just came to be that there was almost nothing that wasn't interesting to me once I was partially exposed to it. Then I left the field of classics, and after I got my master's degree, I really enjoyed the nonprofit management track that I was on, and it felt like a good way to say, hey, look, the lighthouse is a combination of nonprofit work and research, but also what I didn't love about the classics was the lack of humanity of like modern humanity, which of course 
a lighthouse on the coast of North Carolina has quite a bit of. So it seems like it was a combination of all of those things. Once I got on a research track here, it was it's still hard to get me off. Do you live in the actual uh, former keeper's house there? So we did when we first moved here, we ended up having a second son and the four of us lived there for years. I think two and a half years after we moved here, we were there. And now we live on a property that lines up with the lighthouse station, but isn't part of the original federal site. According to my car insurance, I do not commute with my car to work. I just walk past the chicken coop and there I am at work. Well, so you're a little bit off the the main uh, site there, the I guess tourist sea, but you're you're pretty much living at a tourist attraction. What what is that like? Uh, that's right, but it is actually quite different. We lived in the keeper's house. It was a sometimes mm-hmm. a little bit unusual because you know I'd be carrying grocery bags into the keeper's house, which felt a little bit anachronistic, perhaps. Um, now I live next door so I can go get grocery shop, go get groceries without people being like, why is that woman walking into a keeper's house with groceries? So it does feel certainly less fishbowl like, but of course people are still curious when they see, you know, right now we have international chimneys staying on site in our keeper's house. They're working on a, on a project. So people are always curious who is living in that house because they almost get this sense like, you know, maybe there's a holdout, someone, you know, they, they don't always immediately know that the house is associated with the nonprofit, right? They almost maybe think that we're running, opening the lighthouse to the public, but there's maybe a little old lady who refused to sell her house and living on site and they're tramping around her property. But that's that's not the case. The, it was the keeper's house, actually, that gave the spark to the creation of the Outer Banks Conservationists, the nonprofit that I work for. Their goal really was to save that house. It's just that when people walk on site and see that it's an actual residence, they sometimes think, oh, oh, tiptoe or something, which is not necessary. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your job. Uh, what sorts of things does it encompass? I, I believe you manage uh, docents for one thing. Is that right? Mm-hmm. We have about 15 docents who work partial or full day shifts. That's a big part of what I do, communicating with them, making sure they're well-trained, understanding any new shared photographs that I get, any updates to history, making sure they have uniforms, putting money in the bank at the end of the day, that general operation, I'm the the top person to make sure all that happens. Because a lot of my docents are retired people who live in town. Then when their grandkids are in town, they don't come into work, then I'll step in and be in front of the lighthouse, that sort of thing. Just making sure we are open every day, nine to five mid-March through December 1st, and that we're always staffed. When I say we're open at nine o'clock, we're open at nine o'clock. When I say we're going to be here, that door is open and you can come. That's important. That's become really important to me philosophically. So that's part of what we do. And during COVID, it has certainly become more difficult to find people and to have them working the kind of hours they used to work. So that's been interesting, but we're making it through. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, since you brought it up, I believe I read somewhere that uh, your lighthouse was really one of the first uh, to to reopen last year uh, during the pandemic. That's right. So we early on came to the decision that we would just simply follow governor's orders. And when the governor said that museums could reopen, we thought we could reopen safely in part because our windows can open. 
I know that some lighthouses, when they do renovations, they opt for the safety measure of not letting those tall windows open. But ours do, and we have electric outlets going up our tower. So we have, we've always had fans in the summertime on. Mm -hmm. But we just decided fall and on cold days and on spring days, we would have those fans running. Uh, and we put a max capacity and slow down entrance so, and really reminded people to pass on landings instead of on the stairs themselves. So that okay. at no point could someone say, yes, I was within six feet of someone for 15 minutes in shared airspace. So we felt good about letting people in. Last year was masks mandatory. And again, we're following those guidelines, governor guidelines. So now it's not mask mandatory. I'm not sure we won't be going back to that at some point. Well, it's certainly easier to manage that kind of thing in a relatively large lighthouse uh, with uh, landings and everything as you described. It's a little harder in smaller lighthouses that have really tight stairways. And especially, I mean, one of the glorious design pieces about Curatuck, which, you know, is similar to Body and Morris Island and St. Augustine is that we don't have a central spiral staircase. We only have, you know, 20 to 30 steps on one side of the tower and then a landing and it goes up and up like that. So that absolutely made giving people space much more possible in our tower than a smaller lighthouse where they go straight up to the top because then you essentially had to let people up and then let them down before you let the next group in. Yeah. Just another aside here, uh, reading some biographical material about you, I discovered that you actually started a school there. (laughs) Could you maybe explain a little bit about that? Currituck County is an interesting county. It's part of like an original Albemarle land grant. And it used to encompass a greater part of northeastern North Carolina. As more and more counties in North Carolina were created, for instance, Dare County south of us, was created in 1870. That's fine. Currituck was still contiguous. You could still go from the mainland through Kitty Hawk and up until Duck and Corolla. It was all, those things were all connected. It's difficult. Now there's a bridge, but there didn't used to be, but they were all, Kitty Hawk was part of Currituck. But then in 1920, for political reasons, Dare County was allowed to annex Kitty Hawk and and Duck. At that point, Corolla which was named Kerala by then, stood on the Outer Banks, but separate except for through the Currituck Sound from the mainland county, which was fine because it was at the end of the earth. And unless you were coming over on a boat for fishing and hunting, which is what people used Kerala for back then, it was fine. It was, nobody thought, hey, maybe we've lost car access or infrastructure access to that one tiny practical ghost town. It didn't occur to people to think about that. So when we moved here in 2005, everyone who had kids who were turning five just moved south to Duck, which was Dare County, or farther south into Kitty Hawk, and sent their kids to wherever their taxpayer money was going to public school, which was an elementary school down there. But part of my job description says, I have to live on site. That became complicated because that meant my five-year-old was going to have to be on the bus, the longest bus ride in the world. It was going to be two and a half hours because they would drive over the bridge through Dare County up to Kerala, pick up my son, probably be the only person on the bus at that point, drive back over the bridge to Currituck County and then start picking up all the other kids. 
you had to be out a little bit before 6 a.m. and you weren't allowed to be dropped off until 8.30 earliest. And then you had to do it on the return ride. So I didn't want to quit my job and I didn't want to put a five-year-old on the bus. So along with a woman in town who was actually head of Ocean Rescue. So it was an interesting modern version of a lighthouse and a life-saving station getting together to say, let's work together, which, which makes us chuckle. So she, who was head of Ocean Rescue, but had a degree in education, we got together and said, let's figure out how to get an elementary school here. And it's kind of a long story because nobody thought we could do it. And we had appealed to the county to say, hey, we think you could send us just like a substation teacher. We have so few kids here. And they said, we'll do it if you could provide 70 kids for us. But we said, well, of course, there could never be 70 kids because nobody is going to continue to live here if it's on the bus for five hours a day. So it was a back and forth where eventually we circumvented the county and went to the state and said, hey, would you let us start a charter school out here? So then it would still be a public school. And then kids of working class people aren't paying, aren't having to pay tuition for a school we created and aren't having to take the bus. And that ended up, we ended up our first year with 15 kids in the little schoolhouse that actually, funny enough, in the 1890s, the lighthouse keepers asked for permission to build of the federal government. I have a, a sheet of paper that I found in the National Archives that says permission I don't think it says granted, but it says permission approved or something like that in order for the lighthouse keepers to build a schoolhouse here. There was presumably schools out here before, but the current schoolhouse we have, which was built as a one room and became a two room schoolhouse, was in fact the lighthouse keeper and the surfman's wow. kids school. Wow. That is that is great. I didn't realize that part of it. What a what a great legacy to keep that. Yeah. Now we have 43 wow. kids this coming year. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. We're That's about, fantastic. we're working on thinking about a capital campaign to actually build our own building right next door. Because of course, and then it's another sort of COVID issue, but lots of people, and it may be true where you are, I think it is. Lots of people have moved to the beach permanently. So that has changed. Yeah. They think, oh, there's a school here. I'll move to that town. Not realizing that we are really constrained by size so we have a lot of kids on our waiting list now, like 18 yeah, well, on our waiting list right now trying to get in. Just another side story before we get back to the lighthouse. Uh, there's a, a property called Island Farm, right? That's also managed by the Outer Banks Conservationist. Can you explain what Island Farm is? The Outer Banks Conservationist is dedicated to preserving historic sites. And Roanoke Island, which is the home to a town called Manio that a lot of people think about, but also others, deep, there's deep water fishing there. It's an island in the middle of the Albemarle Sound. So farther south from us, once you hit Nags Head, if you drove west at this point over a bridge, then you would get to Roanoke Island. And the Outer Banks Conservationist owns property there on which they run a historic farm. So it's an 1849 farm site, and it has a separate site manager. They're open for about the same number of months we are, about mid-spring till Thanksgiving, four days a week. And they have all sorts of mini events. You can walk around the farm and meet the animals that are there, but they also have a blacksmith on site and they have food events. They have ox rides. They have all sorts of events that are smaller and shorter, but 
They've got two of the Corolla wild horses there that were taken off the beach. That might get us into a deep conversation about the wild horses, but two of them are on our farm there. So they do uh, weekly events where you can go meet those horses and learn about the history of wild horses on the Outer Banks. We did a whole program on disease in the Outer Banks, looking at not only the impacts of COVID, but also the Spanish flu. So that's a that's a fun site. There's chickens, there's sheep, there's lots to do there. You can also go buy vegetables there. Oh, cool. Uh, so you brought it up. So I have to ask you a little bit more about the wild horses. Uh, do you have the wild horses around the light station as well? Up until the mid-90s, the wild horses were all over Kerala. They had free reign. Uh, there were enough deaths by vehicular crashes once our road was paved that there was an effort made to get them to the 11,000 acres that are north of us with no hardtop road. So there's a fence that goes across our spit of land and it keeps them, even though there are residential areas up there where people drive on their lowered tires and four-wheel drive vehicles. Uh, but that keeps them off the roads where people might be driving 35 miles an hour on hardtop. But we did have a pen behind the lighthouse where any of the horses that were injured could come spend time before a vet could see them. These days, there's an organization, the Corolla Wild Horse Fund, and they actually have their own farm on the mainland. So if a horse is injured, they'll remove it from the beach entirely. Obviously, there's a lot more we could talk about related to the horses and the wildlife. <laughs> It's very interesting because people used to use the Outer Banks to herd cows and buffalo. But if you want your infrastructure protected, then you need dunes. If you want your dunes to stay up, you need grasses. So the horses mm -hmm. and the dunes seem to be pretty symbiotic. But it, it is very interesting what dunes mean to the infrastructure of having a destination on the Outer Banks, which is certainly where we are now. Sure, sure. I'm sorry to, to leave that subject, but this is a, a podcast about lighthouses, so I should probably <laughs> yeah. ask you some more about the uh, the light station. Let's just talk a little bit about the, the history of the place. Uh, in the first place, why was a lighthouse needed at, at Currituck Beach? The dark space that we had here between Cape Henry Lighthouse and Body Island Lighthouse was the last dark space on the East Coast. So we have documents from the 1870s that say very specifically from Maine to Florida, this is what's left. So we're not the last tall brick coastal lighthouse to be built on the East Coast because Morris Island actually due to diseases is finished after Currituck Beach Lighthouses. But that mm -hmm. site was already illuminated prior to that tower being built. We're the first tower here on the site in the last dark space to be illuminated. Actually, what they call, I don't even know how to pronounce it, I-L-L-U-M-I-N-E. I don't know if that's illumine or illumine, but we're the last site to be illumined. Yeah, uh, illumined, I would say, yeah. Illumined, you think that's how they pronounce it? I or illuminated, like, but uh, yes, I've seen that, that word here talking last, about that. They left the last syllable off of it. But yeah, so... Uh, 18, so in the 1850s, there's talk of establishing a light station in this general area, and it doesn't happen. They appropriate money, they take the money back. So it's not until 1873 that money is appropriated again. So they pur purchased land at that time. Then 1874, they begin to drive the piles. And by 1875, 
by the fall of 1875, they're done. The lens is in. They're beginning to hire keepers. And December 1st, 1875, the tower is illuminated. Is there anything particularly uh, interesting or, or notable about the construction and or design of the lighthouse? So yes, as long as we remember that that we are really a replica, right? When I look back on the plats for the architectural design, Body Island has the earliest signed copies. And soon after that is St. Augustine, right? So it's like March and then July of 1871 that, that these architectural plates get signed. Then some lighthouses that are much shorter are built in California. And then Kurtuk and Morris Island have some alterations, both to the St. Augustine and the Body Island plats. And then we're built as twins to one another, uh, Morris and Kurtuk. But notably, and you can see it in writing, that all of those towers, so I'm not just talking about those two, but all of them built on this plan have an interior airspace so that really the interior wall and the exterior wall have airspace in between. So that's interesting, as well as the fact that there's that it's conical interior and conical exterior, as opposed to a conical exterior, but a cylindrical interior, right? Those lighthouses where there's just a spiral staircase straight up, that is a much better use of money, if you will, just to make those stairs identical and cast them all identically and go straight up. In this case, every landing of ours is a separate size. The other things that are interesting about Kuratak are not only our first order keeper's dwelling, but also our elliptical brick walkway, which was built at no other of our twin lighthouses. So Kuratak has a lot of terrestrial space, if you will. So if you look at Morris Island, which is an identical twin to us, it's built on a tiny island and it's eroding fast. By the 1930s, yeah. it's all gone practically. Yeah. Whereas yeah. we, by the 1890s, have a school. We have a church. We have a post office, which really made Currituck an attractive place to be sent. So not only are you not on top of water, you're not even that much at the end of the earth comparatively. So I, I kind of attribute our brick walkway, which a professor at SCAD has promised me he's a, a, uh, an expert on walkways on the planet, what he calls paths and sidewalks. And he says that the elliptical brick walkways at the Kurtuk Beach Lighthouse are unique, that he has never seen anything like it. So those are the things that make us special. The I, the tower, which is duplicated from others in plans, but the keeper's house, which is the only one of those original four built that still stands, and our elliptical yeah. brick walkway. And then of course, another thing that's unique, or at least for lighthouses around there, uh, about the, the tower at Karatuk is, is its lack of paint. Uh, of course, the other brick towers and the outer banks have very distinctive day marks. I'm sure most of our listeners know this, the black and white spiral bands on Cape Hatteras, and there's a, a few others. Uh, why was Karatuk uh, left unpainted? Perhaps polka dots just wasn't dignified enough. Um, you know, if we already have striped <laughs> yeah. vertical and striped diagonal and, you know, we have a white lighthouse on either side of us, really, of course, 
Cape Henry, the new Cape Henry Tower, is black and white stripes going up and down or partitions. It's built after us, so presumably they could have allowed Currituck to be black and white stripes up and down. Uh, I have never found anyone saying, let's save money on paint because we put so much money into everything else in that site, or wouldn't it be pretty, or wouldn't the red stick out just fine, and it's better for the brick to be able to breathe through, you know, allow humidity to pass through. I don't have any indication that I could find telling me exactly why that decision was made. It took about a million bricks to build this lighthouse, which I think is also what Cape Hatteras is, but we are a good 25% shorter than Cape Hatteras. And I've uh-huh. actually been really trying hard to prove that Kurtuk Beach Lighthouse, that the full order of bricks for the site was only 650,000. Again, mm. probably a minor point to most people. But I do have a, a request for a bid in a newspaper in 1874, right after St. Augustine Lighthouse has been finished, saying, hey, We'd like quotes on 650,000 bricks for Currituck. And my feeling is mm-hmm. if they've just finished building St. Augustine and in that request for quotes, they are actually asking for more bricks for St. Augustine. So they mm-hmm. know by 1874 exactly how many bricks they needed to finish that site. So I feel like, hmm, doesn't it make sense that 650? would get us a lighthouse, a brick walkway, and some foundations. But I can't Mm -hmm. prove that they never asked for a second round. I'm not quite sure. But I think it's probably more likely that there are about 600,000 bricks in our lighthouse. That's still pretty impressive. It's still Uh, impressive. And in fact, I get community volunteers, you know, community service volunteers. I'll put them to work at the lighthouse. And one recently came and he said to me, you know, I'm a pretty OCD person. And I'm deadly afraid of bugs. So I was like, well, I can't put you to work on the ground. And I can't even make you go sweep the lighthouse because there's almost always a spider web in there. So I had him count the bricks in our walkway. And he's not done yet because we still have half bricks that form a little bumper on the side. But of the of the bricks laid flat, there were 13,105. Wow. <laughs> hmm. You're the first person that I've told this fact to. <laughs> I love I love numbers like that. You know, there are certain uh, granite uh, lighthouses where I happen to know the number of uh, stone, you know, blocks that were used to build them. But uh, right. in the cases Isn't of stone blocks, there's only a yeah, it is, it is. It, it I think it makes it more more tangible somehow. But um, you know, there are some of these stone lighthouses that took like more than a thousand huge granite blocks, but. Uh, 650,000 bricks is awfully impressive to me. Let's talk about the lens in the lighthouse. What is significant about uh, the lens at Currituck? Okay, so the lens at Currituck is interesting because it is a, uh, it's an unusual first order Fresnel lens in that it is a fixed rotating Fresnel lens. So I do believe that St. Augustine has a lens that is that is like ours, but I don't know of others that are a fixed rotating, which means that some of the the flash panels don't move at all, but then there's a rotating arm that goes around it that the lighthouse keepers would have cranked a weight that went up on a cable through the center of the tower every two and a half hours Mm -hmm. around a drum. Then 
they would allow that weight to pull the cable down the drum controlled by a tick-tocking governor. And as it slowly went down, probably from the bottom of the first landing to the bottom of our sand pit, it would have moved gears, which would have moved wheels that moved an apparatus that had three bullseye flash panel arrangements on it. And in front of those bullseyes were ruby red glass doors, is what they often called them. And so as the apparatus rotated around the fixed part of the lens, let's say you were steady at C, you would have seen five seconds of red light and 85 seconds of steady white light. So that you would have seen the red flash coming at you, but the white light didn't move at all. And so that was a full rotation, would have been a two and a half minute rotation. That's what would have created our night pattern. There was a shipwreck, the Metropolis, early in the history of Kartuk Beach Lighthouse, is about two or three years after it was established. The mm-hmm. wreck was in January 1878. What uh, is significant about that shipwreck, the Metropolis? The Metropolis is significant for us because our lighthouse keepers housed dozens of shipwreck survivors. Um, I think the quote says that the first night he furnished food and shelter. This is our first principal keeper, Burris. He says, I furnished food and shelter for 61 persons that night and for about 76 for breakfast and dinner and also sheltered them that night and gave them breakfast the following morning, Saturday. They left at noon for the steamer for Norfolk, Virginia. Um, And that was January 31st of 1878. So you can just imagine, of course, they have rations here. So that's how I always imagined they had enough food to feed that many people. If if 70 people showed up to my house right now to eat, they would not all eat, right? So it must have been, it's just interesting to think about how did they have that much food on site that had to be with rations. And the amount of trauma, because scores of people die. There's varying accounts, but it's it's above 80 people who died. So if you think about the trauma of the people in that house that night and then another night, that's a really memorable experience for any lighthouse keeper. Sure. And we had three here on site who must have all been part of that. That's not even our first or their first traumatic experience. The Nuova Ottavia happens really soon after we're illuminated. And one of the guys from the working party building the keeper's house. So while our keepers are living on site, but in temporary shelters, one of the guys working on the house drowns after he's asked to join the surfmen. And not only that, but I know that for years after the metropolis, even they find remains of bones of people they assume are lost on the metropolis here buried on the beach. Another point in the history of the light station, I I was reading, I believe there was a second keeper's house that was moved to the light station in 1920. Tell me if I have that right. It sounds like it's an interesting story. Can you tell me about that? I sure can. So the Currituck Beach Lighthouse is next to the Currituck Sound to our west and the Atlantic Ocean, obviously, to our east. Within the Currituck Sound, there is a lot of transportation going on that needs assistance through beacons. So they set up 
a light station there called the Long Point Light Station, eventually the depot that's there. And it's a very interesting place. Their keepers get paid about 50% more than our keepers get paid or than our principal keeper gets paid because they're in charge of creating naphtha gas. It's like a federally funded gas station where they have a retort and they're trying to make gas-filled aids to navigation instead of oil. They have three keepers there. Principal keeper has his own house and then a duplex assistant keeper's house. But by 1914, no one is producing naphtha gas there anymore. And eventually the site becomes empty. There's just houses sitting there. So by 1920, it's determined that their principal keeper's house will be put on a barge and brought to the Kurtuk Beach Light Station, which will allow our assistant keepers to quit sharing one side of a duplex. So it's a lot of work to bring a house over and very, very shallow water. And I can see from the the paper that we have here that it is slow going. Once they get the house over to this side of the water, it's slow going to actually get it into place. Um, it says working party arrived, moved, Storehouse to back lot. Um, oh, that's January and February. It says work progressing slowly on house moving, which I can imagine because they're trying to do it in February. But eventually they do move it onto site. The The site is originally sort of a mirror duplex. I mentioned our elliptical walkway, but one side mirrors the other side. So you have the lighthouse, you have a duplex keeper's house, and then on either side, you have a storehouse, sometimes also used as a summer kitchen or even as a woodshed. But when they bring that lightkeeper's house over from Long Point, they move the north storehouse and they move it east of the lighthouse and it sits. I can see it in photographs for another couple decades. But our site is no longer a mirror image of itself. But the second lighthouse or the second assistant keeper moves into that house so that each keeper has his own independent dwelling. And I do think that must have been helpful. Early on in the history of the tower, we can see that our keepers are not getting along. And there's a variety of reasons for that, but it certainly stems in part, I'm going to speculate, from having two families, two pretty large families, living together. We have 18 people living on one side of our, what seems to be a pretty big house, but 18 mm -hmm. people sharing three bedrooms and an attic can be pretty tricky, I'm guessing. So I think that was in everybody's best interest to have a third house for our third keeper. But then of course, 13 years later, we electrify and unfortunately get rid of that third position. And then we're back mm -hmm. to having two keepers and I think they stay in the larger house. How isolated was it in the early days? Obviously, the Outer Banks are a tourism center today, but uh, it must have been a lot more isolated in those early days. Absolutely. The, the keepers were allowed to have their families here on site, which I do believe made this sort of a coveted location, as opposed to any screw pile lighthouse, of course. And because we did have a school here pretty early on, there were people here. So you had kids at the schoolhouse. We can see photographs, sometimes even as many as 20 kids back in those days. So I don't 
think as far as the Outer Banks goes, this was a terribly isolated. There were lots of villages up and down the Outer Banks. So Corallo was just one, but it had a life-saving station here. The Jones Hill station was the original station here, built prior, actually, a year prior to the lighthouse. But there would have been those surfmen. Some might have had wives living nearby, kids, plus three keepers here and their kids. You know, there would have been at least, I'd say, 60 people in this town, at least. So mm -hmm. that's something. Yeah. Uh, you know, also the idea, at least for Kerala from fairly early on, was that we were almost like a spit down from Virginia. So a lot of our lighthouse keepers were North Carolinians. But being part of the 5th District, they are also working at other lighthouses, both within Virginia and North Carolina. And Norfolk mm -hmm. is north of us and really more of a city center, I think, for these people in many ways than even, well, than anything, right? That would have been the nearest metropolis for sure. A lot of them are from Mania or the Kuratak mainland. But when tragedy strikes, at one point, one of our keepers' niece slash adopted daughter dies. That's in the 1920s already, so there are easier vehicular travel. But she dies in Virginia Beach. She drowns in Virginia Beach. She doesn't drown here at our lighthouse on our ocean right next door. In short, not that isolated given yeah. that we understand lighthouses are built at the end of the earth. As far as the end of the earth goes, we're not highly isolated. And there's a lot of travel by sailboat, right? So mm -hmm. there's, you, people have horses out here. There is, there are ways to get along around, even in the 1870s, it seems, mostly by boat um, within the waterways, the interior waterways. We've got the intracoastal waterway that had already been built at a little bit more than a decade prior to, or at least near here, the the uh, Albemarle and Chesapeake Canal was finished, I think, 1859. And so there's a lot of access coming out here. Can you tell me a little bit about how the Outer Banks Conservationists, the organization, came to be involved with the lighthouse? I believe that was around 1980. John Wilson, who's actually John Wilson IV, is the great grandson of the last oil-carrying lighthouse keeper here. His name was Homer Treadwell Austin, and he was the last principal keeper here. He had a good number of kids, so that by the time his first daughter had her first child, that child was the same age. So his granddaughter was the same age as his youngest daughter. And so his granddaughter which is John Wilson's mom, would come spend her summers here from Manio on Roanoke Island. She'd come spend summers out here with her aunt, who was her same age, and they would. she lived at the lighthouse for the summers and spoke of it highly to John, who in his 20s was already, what I like to say, taking over the earth. But you know, he was maybe the youngest mayor of a North Carolina town. He was an artist but also an architect. And when he came out to see the state of this first order duplex dwelling in the 1970s, it was in very bad shape. It had not been lived in since 1937 when the lighthouse was automated and keepers were no longer living here at that point, September of 1937. And he got the idea to save the house as an architect, as an artist, as a person with, a, with an emotional tie to his family's story with this house, he convinced the state of North Carolina 
to let the nonprofit, the Outer Banks Conservationist, which he created for this point, lease the keeper's dwelling in order to to preserve and maintain it. Um, and that was allowed. So the keeper's house then tr- changed hands into the North Carolina Department of Cultural Resources and out of wildlife's hands so that cultural resources was able to create a lease for the nonprofit to do this phased planned renovation work on the house. And since then, uh, there have been a number of restoration projects. And uh, is there uh, one currently happening, actually? There is the international, the, well, ICC Commonwealth, as international chimneys oh, yeah. are called. That's right. Mm-hmm. They are here. Two of their guys are here working right now in the second mobilization of a project that we started in early 2020. They were here in February of 2020. They were supposed to be back six weeks later with some recast cornice pieces and brackets to support our roof on top of our lantern. And then everybody was on lockdown and then we didn't make any money. We were closed all last summer and they were gracious enough to allow us to postpone that contract. So they arrived a couple of weeks ago with Mm -hmm. the recast pieces, which were actually recast right on time in 2020. And, uh, so they are currently working on that project. We're looking at some weather all week this week, but they're also, there's a couple of things they're working on. There's dissimilar metal remaining in our lantern. So they will remove some of our glass, separate those metals and replace the glass that's there only because of course, dissimilar metals, I think bronze and iron in this case, cause the iron to rust, which causes gra- glass to crack which of course, because our first order Fresnel lens is still in place, we want to avoid, ah, for a variety of reasons, we want to avoid that kind of rusting. Uh, But also we have window jams in the tower, which need a little bit of upkeep, I think is the right word for it. Our first jam, so the east side in our tower is of course the ocean facing lowest ones. We really didn't have dunes, which caused or allowed trees to grow here until after the Ash Wednesday storm of 1962. And so prior to that time, so 1875 to sometime after 1962, there is a lot of salt and sand hitting that bottom east-facing window. And so the window jam, the iron window jam, and that very specific window needed a lot of attention too. And so on the bad weather days, they are, they're working on that window or, and in fact, on all the window jams, but that's the one that really needed attention. Is Currituck Beach Light Station threatened by erosion and or rising sea level? There are some studies going on right now that indicate that there is land north of us that seems to be losing sand. I have done some overlaying of maps from our original maps with GIS maps today. And to me, it doesn't look like the property right here is threatened. Not to say Mm -hmm. that that wouldn't change, of course, because water rising is water rising, but it does feel like currently we're in a great position. It doesn't mean it's not something we wouldn't want to think about, but there's nowhere for us to go right? We're already smack in the middle of this island and, well, we're not an island, sorry. We're smack in the middle of this bit of sand. 
which is always confusing to people because then that road was built between us and the ocean. And they say, why did you build your lighthouse on the other side of the road? Which of course is not how it worked temporarily, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of other high land right near us. But right now it is not a primary concern for us. Well, that's good. So let's just talk a little bit about uh, public access. First of all, what is the usual schedule? Okay, so we are open from mid-March through December 1st every year. And every single day, except for Thanksgiving, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., weather permitting. So in big storms and lightning, we will close. Uh, If my employees can't get here after a hurricane, even if the hurricane passed, we'll stay closed. Through those couple of months that we're closed uh, to the public, it's only because it is truly too cold to put a retiree for some number of hours in a building with no climate control at all. And very few people choose to climb and your hands get so cold uh, on those iron handrails. So it's sure. really just because there's not a demand to climb a very cold lighthouse in the wintertime. You kind of just answered my next question. I was going to ask, uh, is the lighthouse open for climbing? So, uh, But part two of that question is how many stairs are there? Good. So there are 220 steps from the outside to the t- to the accessible public gallery. Uh, it's 202 of them are iron and the rest are granite. 214 are interior and six are exterior, which does lead us to a little bit of a fast fact about Currituck that all of our twins only have five steps leading to the front door and we have six. And you can tell very clearly that five were prefabricatedly ordered and installed. And I don't know what that means, whether they intentionally built our foundation one step Mm -hmm. taller or whether they were just whistling while they worked and didn't notice. And on site, we're like, oh, wait, oops, those stairs don't reach the front door. Make one more step. I don't know how it happened. But if you look at St. Augustine, they have 219 steps. That was true of Morris Island. But we have one extra step. I just climbed uh, St. Augustine two years ago. Ponce Inlet, which is a little bit different uh, tower, but has, uh, I think, well over 200 steps as well. So Ponce Inlet is the beginning of architects going back to a cylindrical interior. They're all so, so beautiful. They're all, uh, they have a, a, an elegance to them uh, that is I think, pretty striking, all these tall yeah. towers. So what else do visitors experience when they go there besides climbing the tower? We have school groups who will come and give a full guided tour to, or groups that call us ahead of time, tour groups, bus groups, church groups, nonprofit groups. But for the most part, as people arrive, they are self-guided. So they walk around. We have a shop in our little keeper's house now that they're welcome to enjoy. We have an outhouse, a double-headed privy that's still on site. Uh, there's little indications of other buildings that have been here over the years. In the 1950s, the Navy put a barracks here on site. And so you can still see some of the exposed piping and like sump pump cover that were to that. But that takes about an hour for people to come, climb our lighthouse, walk around, take pictures, visit the shop. So I have one final question for you. And if you've ever listened to the podcast, you know that this question is for bonus points. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I hope you've uh, sharpened your number two pencil. 
Final question is, what have you enjoyed most about your association with Currituck Beach Light Station? There are so many things. In short, I love the seasonality of lighthouse visitorship because I love people, but I also love research. So I love the quiet and I love the pandemonium. So I never mind seeing people all summer long. People say, oh, it's Memorial Day. Are you dreading it? No, because I love, I mean, as you know, people who come to see lighthouses are happy people. So I'm happy to see them. They're happy to be here. It's not like we had to make up their beds or bring them food. And then they complain about that sort of thing. People overall do not complain about lighthouses. So we have the joy of just amplifying the pleasantness of their visit. That's a great job. That's why I'm here 16 years. I love that. Plus, there's the wide open space. Plus, there's the undeveloped property on either side of us. There's the quiet at night. I don't want to make it sound too amazing, lest everyone starts applying for my job, which they might. But there's nothing to not love, if you're me, about this job. The research, the ability to go work with the National Archives, the transcription side of things, forcing my kids to help me read cursive. Nothing is not fun about this job. I understand. <laughs> I, I completely understand everything you're saying. And I feel like I didn't even scratch the surface. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I love your phrase. Uh, you love the quiet and you love the pandemonium. You know, certainly you have plenty of plenty of both of those things. Uh, right. The lighthouse. People yep. want to get married here. They want to be romantic about it. They come back every year. There's so many different ways to approach a lighthouse, right? The first time climbers, the people who climbed our lighthouse first and therefore love it the most, the people who want their passport stamped, there's endless conversations as you're learning with your podcast that you can have just around lighthouses. So uh, Megan Agresto, thank you so much. Uh, You know, um, I feel like we could, uh, maybe I should just do a regular podcast with you because you have so so much, (laughs) so much knowledge and some, you're, you're very entertaining to listen to and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you. And I hope we can do it again. And uh, and I'll see you there when I get. We're not that far away. Oh, that's true. Anytime you want, Jeremy, I would love to host you. To learn more about Currituck Beach Lighthouse, visit the Outer Banks Conservationist's website at obcinc.org. That's obcinc.org. It was a real pleasure speaking with Megan Agresto. You know, she's so uh, knowledgeable and enthusiastic about her work. It was a real, real pleasure. I look forward to seeing her lighthouse in person. Look forward to seeing the Outer Banks in person uh, soon, I hope. Thanks to everyone associated with the U.S. Lighthouse Society. To learn more about the tours and everything else the Society offers, visit uslhs.org. And of course, donations and memberships help support this podcast. Thanks to everyone who works to preserve lighthouses and their history. Keep up the good work. We're all on the same team. The author Landon Parham once wrote, quote, Life isn't just about darkness or light. Rather, it's about finding light within the darkness, end quote. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light.